The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7 for our scripture reading, please. Isaiah in the 7th chapter. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the son of Judah, or sorry, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you also weary my God? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Curds and honey He shall eat, that He may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings." The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and on all thorns and in all pastures. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor, with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds, for curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with a hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. 
but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. Someday we'll study that passage in more detail. I would note though that when the Lord spoke to the king, you notice in verse number 10 and 11, He told the king to ask a sign. And the sign has to do with the promise that was made in the prior verses that those nations that come up against Judah would not prevail. So God tells them, ask a sign for yourself. It doesn't matter how deep or how tall, just ask. And unfortunately, Ahaz seems to put on a, to, to a common way of reading this, as I understand it, kind of put on a false piety and say, I will not ask. Well, you were just told to ask, so just do it. Just obey what God has, has said. Uh, but he says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So God says, therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Okay, you don't want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And then He gives this sign which is uh, somewhat enigmatic for us as we read because we ask, well, how does the sign of a virgin conceiving and bearing a child fit with the context here? And uh, as I understand it, what He's saying is that in the time period that that child would be born and then grow to a certain age, that age where he's accountable for knowing good and evil, in that amount of time, that event is going to occur way in the future. We know that. But in that amount of time, these uh, kings would forsake coming after you and they would be, uh, their lands would be left without king. A uh, king, verse 16, for before the child would know to do those uh, to refuse evil and choose good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So in just the space of a few short years, before the child is even, you could say, weaned, that, that length of time, uh, before that passes, this whole problem that you have now is going to go away. So that's the sense of, of the prophecy. And we know the New Testament applies it very clearly to Christ. There's only been ever one such birth. And so it only could be have a single referent. Interesting uh, kind of proof of single reference of, of um, uh, prophecy. You can't have more than one of these. So it's not like Isaiah's uh, wife had another child here that met those constraints. Okay, thus the scripture reading tonight. Our young people are out doing their Truth Trackers Club. That leaves uh, a skeleton crew here for us to go through the Scriptures together. Um, I hope that this will be helpful to you. Uh, It certainly has been informative to me. As I introduced the subject on uh, Wednesday evening, uh, uh, I had encountered the Hebrew Roots movement again uh, recently. And I had heard of it before, but it just didn't register with me that I should look into it or say anything about it too much. And um, so I checked with a source that I have, a pastor on the East Coast who has written a number of many, many articles on various topics. And I said, do you have anything on this? And he said, no, I don't have anything. So that left me with the task of writing something or, or studying and writing something on it. And I've since shared this with him so that he does now have something and he's able to share with Uh, some of his uh, pastor acquaintances and others who might benefit from it. Um, So the Hebrew Roots movement, I figured it's important for me to dig into this and see what is true and what is not right about it and see if I need to uh, 
give a warning to you folks about it, which I do, and by thus preaching I do that. Um, there are, by some estimates, 200 to 300,000 adherents to this particular viewpoint. So that is quite a number of people across, uh, well, at least the United States, that are holding to the Hebrew roots form of theology. And as I said on Wednesday, the basic issue is that the thought is the church has lost its way. The church has strayed so far from its first century Jewish roots that it's got to get back to that. The, uh, Jesus was a Jew. The first Christians, you know, uh, James and John and all these, they were all Jews and we've got to get back to that sort of uh, culture, lifestyle, theology, and so on. So I wondered, therefore, is this... Uh, kind of a replacement theology variation or is this a modern uh, version of the circumcision heresy that was dealt with in Acts chapter 15? Uh, there are some similarities to it, but I couldn't make that case before I studied it well and to try to see what it, what it taught. So um, I cautioned myself that you know salvation is of the Jews, so we don't want to just dismiss this and say, you know, there's nothing to the Hebrew roots of Christianity. Of course, Christianity is an outgrowth of, a fulfillment of uh, the Jewish faith. Salvation is of the Jews, John 4.22. Uh, it's a fulfillment, uh, a completion of that faith. And I know that Jewish people hate that when, that, when you say that. Um, but that's just the reality of it. Uh, the way that we understand Scripture uh, very clearly, it teaches us that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it, Matthew 5.17, which is a big verse in this Hebrew Roots movement. By the way, I think a misunderstanding of it. But um, And there are promises in the Old Testament like uh, a future king, like a future priest uh, in the order of Melchizedek, uh, a prophet raised up like Moses, um, one who would give his soul an offering for sin, Isaiah 53. One who would be raised from the dead. One who would be born of a virgin. All of these things are necessary to be fulfilled in, in the Jewish faith. And uh, we, we understand that they are fulfilled in Christianity, which is that, that Jewish uh, fulfillment, if you will, fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. So uh, we don't want to just dismiss the whole notion of the Hebrew roots of Christianity. It's very important. Now, we mentioned the characteristics. Some of you weren't here on Wednesday, so I'll just touch on these again. Characteristics or key ideas and practices of the Hebrew roots movement. They elevate the law of Moses, the Torah. They are what they call Torah observant. Torah observant Christians. Generally keeping kosher diet, Jewish feasts, Sabbath is especially important to them. Other Hebrew traditions are elevated. Uh, some elevate uh, extra biblical writings or even prioritize the New Testament or Old Testament rather over the New Testament. Prioritize the Old Testament over the New Testament. We'll mention that again. Some uh, change their own name to a Hebrew name. They use the Hebrew name of Jesus, Yeshua, or Yeshua HaMashiach, the Christ, the Anointed One. Um, they may use the name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, in their reading of the New Testament and the Old Testament, or they might write the word God, G-D, so as not to put that name down on paper. So 
that there's a little difference there. Um, you won't find, actually, there's, uh, I don't know what translation is it that uses y, YHWH in English. Are you familiar with which one that is? There is a translation that does that, but most translations have stuck with the old traditional way of, of L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D perhaps. Um, but these folks want to use the word Yahweh or Yahweh. Um, they teach that the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew, which I think uh, we can't have, I don't have time to prove all that to you, but that's I think just an error, factual error. Uh, it's, it was actually written in Greek. Um, all evidence points to that conclusion. Uh, Hebrew Roots Movement, HRM, as, uh, as it's abbre- abbreviated, is, uh, it rejects traditions like Christmas. So a Christmas celebration, they would consider a Christmas tree pagan in origin, so they would not participate in that sort of thing. Some deny the Trinity. Some deny the deity of Christ. Uh, the idea of God in the flesh is offensive to some advocates of this movement because it, that violates the idea that there's only one and true, one true and living God. So very, some of the some of the movement again are not painting with too broad of a brush, like I emphasized on Wednesday night. But some uh, would say that they believe in strict monotheism. Always remember Dr. Sachs teaching about that, don't you, brother? Always, you know, not monotheism strictly, and not tritheism, right? Trinitarian monotheism. <laughs> Drum that into our heads so that we understand the teaching of Scripture, the orthodox teaching of it. Um, sin, they say, is, the def- is defined as breaking the Torah. Sin is lawlessness, and they say that means it's breaking the law. What's the law? Well, they just jump right to the law of Moses. And they, they demand that there be one law, some anyway, demand there be one law for both Jews and Gentiles based on Numbers 15:16, which said there that when the Lord is teaching the people through Moses, He's saying, look, there's going to be one consistent law for you and for the stranger that dwells in your midst. So they take that and say there has to be one law forever, Jews and Gentiles, under this law. We saw some connections uh, of this movement. We saw a seeming connection to Seventh-day Adventism. We saw a connection to the Worldwide Church of God on Wednesday with its founder, Herbert Armstrong. We saw briefly a connection to the Sacred Name Movement. Uh, we saw also a connection to Messianic Jewish congregations who, uh, of, of the Christian you know, flavor. Not just, I'm not just talking about pure Jewish congregations or synagogues, but Messianic Jews. And then the present-day influence, uh, influence of the leader uh, Yisrael Izzi Avraham. And I don't have any more details on him. Uh, I should actually, and that will be for uh, future work. I don't have a pen to even mark my uh, notes there, but another uh, influential person. There's actually another couple. I didn't write their names down, but the husband's name is Dean, and I've forgotten the last name, but they have uh, the HebrewRoots.net website. And they started this ministry back in the 1990s, and they have written a lot of pamphlets, kind of a pamphleteering type of thing. And they uh, teach, both of them, they have these writings, some available on the website, other available only by asking them for print copies of it. And 
that's been kind of a central repository of this theology. They've been very influential in that movement. So that's all what we did last time, just a brief review. This time we move on to look at theological issues with the movement. And really what I'm doing here is taking what we've talked about now and I'm critiquing it. And uh, it's not going to be a very favorable critique. Okay, I don't want to be obnoxious to anybody who is uh, holding to this view, but I want to warn us as a church and those who hold the view that it is theologically deficient, clearly theologically deficient and needs to be avoided. First of all, uh, with their emphasis on the law, the law, and, and, and usually there's a confusion here with the law. You just like, in fact, this is very common. I was reading a book on the Westminster Confession just earlier uh, last week and uh, talking about the way that Jesus kept the law and that that was imputed to us. And I won't get into that. That'll be for another time. But it was just interesting to me in this connection that this author, quite well informed, starts writing the book and he just writes the word, the phrase, the law, the law, the law, the law, all the time with no definition whatsoever. And it's assumed, I think, that he's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God above all else. And those two summarizing the, the, the Ten Commands of the Law and the two tablets. But there's just this uncritical acceptance of the, the, the phrase, the law. Well, what is that? There's not just one law in the Bible. There's more than that. And so you have to define your terms. And that's a failure of that particular book and of this movement as well. This movement, just you know, like going to 1 John and saying that sin is breaking the law, and then saying the law equals the law of Moses, that's incorrect exegesis. The law there is the law of Christ. Breaking the, the law of God, and the law of God has adapted and changed according, because He's the authoritative lawgiver. He's changed it. He's given us actually as Gentiles, as Christians really, a new body of law, and we'll speak about that. So, HRM confuses the law of Christ with the law of Moses. Now, Gentiles were never the recipients of the Mosaic law. Never. Not when God gave it, not afterwards. That law also has been fulfilled in Christ. So, Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He came to, again, fulfill it, as we said. But it doesn't say that He he came to continue its operation in every detail either, does it? In fact, he sets aside some of those. It's explicitly set aside for the church age believer. And, you know, HRM advocates would, would you know, swallow hard at that statement, but uh, we see that a number of places. In 1 Corinthians 9, for example, in verse number 20, Paul says, To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under the law. It says he became as one under the law. And then in some of your translations, you'll see kind of a parenthetical statement where he says, though I'm not under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So he's saying, as a, to those who are Jews, I became as a Jew. What is he saying? He is a Jew already. But what he's realized is that in the church and in Christ, that dispensation of the law has stopped 
and he's now in a new regime. But he says, I'll, I'll, you know, put myself back under there in as much as I can, under the law, in order to win the Jews. Uh, or put myself under the law so that I can win those who are under that law, that law of Moses, to be able to win them to Christ. But he says of himself, I'm not under the law of Moses. In Romans chapter 6, he says essentially the same thing. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So what does law do? Law points out our sin. So if you're not under the law, you're not under that dominating feature of the law that, that puts sin over you. Rather, you're under grace, the gracious stewardship, administration, or, as we say, dispensation of God. Okay, so um, the law is explicitly set aside for the church age believer. Now, I think later on I must have, uh, yes, I have something on the dietary parts of the law, so we'll deal with that in just a moment. Turn, to Bible, turn your Bible to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. Is it, and as you go there, please notice this. There is not a single person on the face of this globe who can keep the law of Moses. I'm not even saying who can keep the law of Moses perfectly. There is not a single person who can even attempt to keep the law of Moses. Why? There's no temple for them to offer animal sacrifice. We're going to Acts chapter 15. And on your way there, we're noticing that a Jew today cannot fulfill the law of Moses because the sacrificial system is inoperative. It's not operational. It had vanished away. Time of Hebrews was written. It was just before or around the time in which the sacrificial system ceased when the temple was destroyed. It has not been rebuilt. The official functions of animal sacrifice have not been restored. And so no Jew and no Gentile can keep the law today. Now, in, in, invested in my thinking, built into it is this, that the law is a unit. The law is a unitary thing. We can't break it up into parts and pieces and say, well, I keep the law, only the parts that can be kept. Only the parts that are still, uh, you know, maybe the personal morality parts or the dietary parts of the law, but not the sacrificial parts, which covered so much territory. Or the feasts. What about the feasts? People think they keep the feasts today, but it was three times that the, all the men of Israel were supposed to do what? Every year, three times a year, they were to go to Jerusalem. People don't do that today. Not even Jewish people do that today. Certainly Gentiles don't. And so, it's a myth to think that I can keep the law. You cannot keep the law. It is utterly impossible to keep the law. And you know why I think that is? God thus displaying that dispensation is gone. It's finished. Over. He made sure. Like, remember when he buried the body of Moses and told nobody where the grave was? He made sure that Moses was not going to become some kind of a fetish, a shrine, a place of worship or a person to be worshipped. He made sure that was done. There's no... We're not going to have any of that. Just cut it off right before it starts. And we're not going to have the law continue because we're going to cut it off before it can continue any further. By A.D. 70, it was done. God gave from the death of Christ around 30 
to 70, 40 years for them to, you know, kind of get acclimated to the new program and those who didn't were left behind. No offense intended, my Jewish friends, but it's true that you have a day of atonement with no atonement. A day of atonement with no atonement. No atoning sacrifice. We have an atonement because Christ Jesus has become for us the mercy seat, the sacrifice for our sins. Now, we're in Acts chapter 15. And this very issue of law-keeping came to the attention of the church. It says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brothers... This is coming to... Where where were they coming to? Well, they were in Antioch again, uh, Paul and Barnabas and company. And, and these brothers came down from Judea and taught the, the certain men, sorry, came down from Judea and taught the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So now Paul and Barnabas have no small dissension and dispute with them. Who do you suppose is on the right side of that argument? Well, obviously Paul and Barnabas are. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So they went on their way and uh, came to Jerusalem, verse number 4. They were received by the church. They reported what God had done with them. Verse 5, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed... Now that's strange. It says they, it, they rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. What are they saying? If you are a, a non-Jew, for you to be saved, you have to be circumcised. In other words, receive the mark of circumcision, which is that you are a descendant of Abraham or you're covenanting with Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, part of that community. And to command them to keep the law of Moses. You have to not only be circumcised as an initiatory rite into the people of God, so to speak, but you also have to keep the law of Moses. Oh, really? Paul and Barnabas have been ministering to Gentiles and it's as if these Pharisees, can I say it kindly, they need to get out a little bit. They need to get out and see the world. They need to see that there's a wide world out there of people who are not Jews and they're not going to be keeping the law of Moses and they cannot keep the law of Moses. They cannot travel to Jerusalem. They cannot offer sacrifices at the temple. And that theologically that is invalid. Those things need not to be kept for somebody to be saved. In fact, Paul argued in the book of Romans in chapter 4, when was it that Abraham was justified? Before or after his circumcision? Well, it had to be before because Genesis 15.6 says Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. When was he circumcised? Well, that covenant wasn't, wasn't enacted until chapter 17. And then he was told to circumcise, you know, be circumcised in his descendants after him in every generation. So Paul makes the case very cleverly that circumcision has nothing to do with justification. Circumcision has something to do with Identification with Abraham, certainly, uh, and, uh, and all of that, but it has nothing to do. These folks were confusing categories and demanding Gentiles that if you want to become Christians, you've got to obey all these external uh, rites and rituals. 
to claim that this uh, that this law keeping uh, you know is a way to please God, but to claim that this only has to do with the gospel, the evangel is not convincing. The passage is also clear that the law was not required neither for salvation nor after salvation. And then Romans and Galatians make it clear, kind of put the finishing touches on the Acts 15 decree. What was that decree at the end of Acts 15? Well, they wrote to the church saying, you know, you've been unsettled, that you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. Very clearly, the Acts Acts 15 church council in Jerusalem recognized that there was no place for commanding circumcision or keeping the law. That was out of place, false theology, bad theology, and it became heretical theology. So they uh, write to them, they want to comfort them and send them a messenger by the hands of certain people. And uh, they they say in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, see, they were led by the Spirit of God Himself to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, did they say you have to do that to be saved? They didn't say that. Did they say that those things are necessary for sanctification? No, they didn't really say that either. They just said these are wise things for you to avoid. Now, in um, back to Paul himself, nowhere does Paul teach a Gentile audience that they must keep the law for salvation. And the Acts Council would fully, fully agree with them. So... Um, I've kind of alluded to this next point already, but we'll jump right into it. So keeping the law for salvation is clearly wrong. In fact, the law was never meant as a means of salvation. It only was meant for the pointing out of sin. Paul makes that very clear. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay? And and let, let me let me even... Now I'm going backwards here to my point on the law not being necessary for salvation, but note this. Even for a Jew born in 1000 B.C. or 500 B.C., the law was not the means of salvation. Are you with me? You did not get saved by doing sacrifices and keeping the law. The law has never, ever, ever been a means of salvation. The reason I say that so strongly is this. Some people have in their minds this idea that, well, in the Old Testament, you got saved by keeping the law. But now in the New Testament era, you get saved by believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and acknowledging Christ as Lord and Savior. They see a nice, clean, dispensational program. You got saved this way then. You get saved this way now. It's an old dispensation. It's a new dispensation. No, that is false. That's false doctrine. Let's just put it like that, okay? That's not the case. Never was an Old Testament saint saved by keeping the law. The law pointed out sin to them as it does to us today. The moral law of God, the law of Christ, the law of the New Testament, if you will, as the law of the Old Testament, the law to the Jews, pointed out sin. They never could keep it. They didn't have the nature to keep it. They didn't have the desire to keep it. They had to be saved, born again, 
And then when they were, then they could exercise the provisions of that law as part of their demonstration of their saving faith. Now, somebody in the Old Testament could come to the altar and offer an animal as required, but have no faith. That's like going to church services all your life and sitting there on your pew and not believing a word that's said. Okay? Um, you, you, uh, you could also go to the sacrifice, the, the, the altar in Jerusalem or the tabernacle before that, offer the sacrifice and do so in faith. That pleased God. It was those other sacrifices that didn't please God that he criticizes, say, in Malachi or some of the other Old Testament books, Isaiah. You know, what is the multitude of your sacrifices? Basically, they stink because they're not offered in faith. They're not offered out of a genuine heart. God sees the heart, not the just mere externals. So, those sacrifices could be offered as a bare ritual or as a faithful expression of one's belief in God. Same today. You can come to church and sit there or you can come to Christ and be a true believer and really live for Him and have that desire in your heart. Okay, so the law was never, ever, ever a means of salvation. There's only one way of salvation and that is believing in the revelation that God has given about His salvation. Certainly, in the Old Testament back here, that was less information than we have now. But it was never... You know, like belief plus some other thing. It was always faith in God. Okay? So don't let anybody say, oh, don't you dispensationalists believe in two ways of salvation? <laughs> People keep saying that and it's just foolishness to keep, to keep having to hear that over and over again. I'm sorry to have to say it strongly like that, but the reality is uh, since at least the mid part of the, 19, of the 20th century, the 1900s, that idea of two ways of salvation has been dispatched. Okay, That's gone. Uh, there was people who made misstatements and said wrong things in the dispensational circles just like there were in the covenant uh, theology circles that said wrong things that seemed like they taught two ways of salvation. But that's all been cleared up. This is long, long over with, long done. If you're still stuck in that, you know, you're back in the 19... 30s to 1950s and before if you're still stuck thinking that dispensationalism teaches two ways of salvation. Alright, so uh, keeping the law for salvation is clearly wrong, but also keeping it for sanctification is also wrong. If you began by faith in the Spirit, what are you going to do, Paul says, continue now in the flesh? Who has bewitched you, Galatians chapter 3 says, that you think this? You know, who's cast a spell over you to forget what Paul taught you before? The Spirit-filled walk is how a believer expresses his new life in Christ and how therefore he pleases God. Now, I'll just give you an example. This, is, this comes up often, I suppose, maybe too often, but it bears repeating because it's so clear. Paul says in Colossians 2.16, "...so let no one judge you in food." or in drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Or Sabbaths, plural, actually. Any number of different kinds of Sabbaths. Whether it's the weekly Sabbath or a holy day that was observed in the uh, Old Testament law. No one, including Hebrew roots 
movement proponents are allowed to judge me regarding Sabbath keeping. Okay, so somebody in that movement is not allowed to judge me for not keeping Sabbath. Likewise, let's be fair, I am not allowed by God to condemn them for keeping Sabbath. If they wish to do that, that's fine. Are you with me? It, do, it works both ways. Romans 14 teaches us that one person regards the day, another person doesn't. But you know, let them both be convinced in their own mind before God because to God, you know, we're God's servants, this fellow and me, and we have to answer for, for ourselves. So don't condemn him. He shouldn't condemn me. He's not allowed to do that. Uh, so that goes both ways. However, I am authorized by God's Word to condemn a doctrine that raises these issues as requirements for salvation and sanctification. Are you with me? So this person, I cannot criticize them for keeping Sabbath. They want to do that, that's fine. But if they are saying, you must do that for salvation and sanctification, then I'm authorized to say, wait, wait, wait a minute here. Time out. That is not correct theology. That is, that is error. If those practices like law-keeping, dietary restrictions, Sabbath-keeping are considered in a doctrinal system to have the legalistic effect of earning merit with God or advancing likeness to Christ, then that teaching, not the voluntary participation in certain cultural forms, that's not the issue, that teaching of the legalistic effect of earning merit with God or advancing in Christ-likeness, that is what must be condemned. The New Testament is clear on this issue. Uh, another example is the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant for the Jewish people. Let me just refer back to uh, the book of Exodus. In Exodus uh, thir- uh, sorry, 31. Exodus 31, verse 13, God reiterates to Moses saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths, there it is plural again, interesting, you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So it's very clearly delineated that the Sabbath is a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It's given to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. Okay, Remember, uh, circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. Sabbath is a sign of the Mosaic Covenant here. Um, the rainbow is a sign of the Noahic Covenant. Now, is there a sign for the New Covenant? Is there a sign for the New Covenant? The Sabbath is not a sign for the New Covenant, for sure. We know that. If there is a sign for the church, I think we'd make a good case that it would be the Lord's table. Covenant theologians want to make it baptism 
baptism and correspond that to circumcision. But in either case, either one of those ordinances would be a, a, an appropriate, a seemingly appropriate sign of the new covenant. But not Sabbath keeping. Because Colossians 2.16 says, look, no, no one can judge you regarding Sabbath keeping. Okay. Now, what about dietary restrictions? You know, it's kind of different for us because we, don't, we haven't grown up in a faith system, at least most of us, I think, have not grown up in a faith system where we have dietary anything. Right? What are, the, the dietary restrictions that we observe are what? FDA, you know, the food pyramid, uh, what's going to kill you, you know, now it's, it's too much cholesterol, next is too much salt. So those are the only dietary restrictions we observe, right? We, don't, we never think about, oh, I can't, eat, I can't eat meat on Friday or, I mean, unless you came from a Catholic background, or I can't eat pork or I can't have a ham sandwich because it has, well, not only pork, but it also has cheese in it. See, we just don't even think about those things because we've been so long enculturated our culture with the Christian doctrinal system that it's just not a thing for us. It horrifies certain others, however, to think about eating something not kosher or not in accordance with the uh, Islamic dietary restrictions or, uh, or whatever. But, so, so why is that? Uh, actually, we did read about a couple of dietary restrictions. Oh, you know the other dietary restriction that we have, we put on ourselves? If it's gross, we don't eat it. Okay? Or if we don't like the taste. Like, there's some things that people eat in certain cultures that now we practically treat that as unclean. Uh, my Spanish teacher in high school talked about being the guest of honor at a dinner in, uh, I think, I wasn't sure, if, I'm not sure if it was in South America or in Spain, but she was given a goat's eye, the eye, to eat. And that was like, you know, you're the person here. You, you, you oh man, it goes down pretty tough. <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> we say, no, I don't do that. We don't eat horse and dog and cat and certainly not bats and stuff like that. That's too gross. Um, but dietary regulations, besides the ones in Acts 15, notice it said, uh, eat, don't eat things offered to idols. Don't eat blood. Don't eat things strangled. Well, I don't think any of us have any problem with that at all. Those constraints were not for salvation or even sanctification. They were to avoid offense with our Jewish friends uh, we sh- and for, for Christians, you know, like we should not eat idle meat except for in the ways that the Apostle Paul permitted in 1 Corinthians 10. We spent a lot of time going over that before, so we won't rehearse that again. See the messages on 1 Corinthians 10 on the website if you want or on the YouTube uh, channel there. We could also, or we should also not eat animals that have been strangled or, 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 or drink their blood. But as far as the rest is concerned, there's, there are no dietary restrictions whatsoever. Uh, in Mark seven, eighteen and nineteen, the Lord rebuked the Jews for saying for, for this notion. They, he said, Don't you do you really think that things that go in can defile a person? Don't you see that 
It's what's already inside in the heart that defiles a person. All these evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and hatred and anger and and all those things that are in no short supply in our own culture today. Just turn on the news and, and hear it and see it. Same back then. Those were the things that defiled. To eat meat or to eat with unwashed hands. He declared all foods clean. What about Acts chapter 10? God, what did God do to a Jewish man in Acts chapter 10? He lowered a sheet from heaven with all kinds of birds and creeping things and four-footed beasts and said, rise Peter, kill and eat. Rise Peter, kill and eat. If that wasn't enough, rise Peter, kill and eat three times. That is the uh, three time, you know, thrice repeated instruction from heaven. And Peter objected and said, hey, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. God said, look, what, what God has cleansed, you are not to call common. You're not to call unclean. You're not to call profane. And then Peter is brought to the realization that, oh, the food that we consider the Gentiles to eat that makes them thus unclean is not something that I can consider anymore to make them unclean. I must go to the Gentiles, preach the Gospel to them, and see them to be saved. So, Mark 7, Acts 10, Acts 15, 1 Corinthians 10, all these passages taken together cement our view that we don't have those dietary restrictions. We need not keep kosher, neither for health reasons nor for religious reasons. Now, the above error about Sabbath and dietary laws plays into the next error, which is namely this. If you, here's what it says. This is a quotation now. Quote, if you are not moved to keep the Sabbath or to keep dietary restrictions, you must not truly be born of God. That's a Hebrew Roots Movement quotation from some advocates. If you're not moved to keep the Sabbath or keep the diet restrictions, you must not be truly born of God. So what they're saying is, since you're not moved to keep Sabbath, and you're not moved to keep the dietary restrictions, you know, when's the last time you had a pork chop or something like that? Since, since you're not internally convicted about those things, you must not truly be born of God. Now, how does that ring in your ears? doesn't sound right to me. Not at all. Now, adherence of the movement would likely say that these works are evidentiary works of one's salvation. Something like what we say, faith works. You know, that, that faith is demonstrated by works. That, you know, it's a living faith which, which shows works. A dead faith does not have works. They might say that. It's evidentiary. And not a way to earn salvation. But the problem is that the explicit scriptural teachings against such regulations, Sabbath and dietary laws, explicit scriptural teachings we just went over, against their view. I mean, you know that even Jews today are not required to keep Sabbath? Is that, have I said that before? <laughs> Jews today are not required to keep Sabbath by God. Is that, am I confusing you? Give me some feedback. Yeah, that's right. 
and uh, the nation is under God's judgment now, and God has sur- surpassed them and set them aside. So the question was, uh, what about them keeping it for all of their generations? Well, are they supposed? Here, here's the thing, okay, Jewish person. I have a decision. I'm going to keep the Sabbath and all that stuff, or I'm going to follow Christ. What do I do? Now, when I follow Christ, I can keep the Sabbath if I want, but I have to recognize that I have to. I'm called by God to enter in to salvation through faith in Christ, and I'm not required to keep the Sabbath. So I, I would say that. And I maybe you know people might disagree with me, but a Jew today is not required to keep the Sabbath. He's not required to keep the dietary laws. In fact, he's not even required to offer a sacrifice. How could he offer a sacrifice? First of all, I said it's impossible, but if he were to do that, thinking that that's going to do something about his sin, he's adding to the gospel. Okay, So, they were supposed to keep that through all their generations, but what does Hebrews say? My covenant they broke. And so, it's ready to vanish away. God's going to establish a new covenant with them. So, with those instructions that we've read in the New Testament, it appears that a Hebrew roots theologian is, is raising the issues of circumcision, of law-keeping, diet, all that, to the, issue, to, the, to the level that it is akin to work salvation. I'm not saying that they all say that, but I'm saying that's the ring of that doctrine in my ear when I hear it. They're saying, you know, your faith must be expressed in these ways to be satisfactory to the Hebrew roots movement. But no, the Bible says your faith need not be expressed in those ways in order to be satisfying to God. Neither if you're a Gentile and also, somewhat shockingly I would say, neither if you are a Jew. The sad thing is, if the Jews were able to get the temple mount and set up a new temple and an altar, you know what they'd do? They'd start sacrificing again. Well, unless it's under the auspices of Ezekiel 40 to 48, which it wouldn't be, they would not be legitimate sacrifices at all. And they would be thinking about them in a wrong way. They would be thinking, okay, we're going to go back to our daily and annual ritual about remembering sins all the time. And the book of Hebrews is saying, look, that's over with. There's one sacrifice for sins forever. Now, there's a couple other issues, and I uh, see I'm going to run out of time again. <laughs> um, one other issue, we have to be very clear with our friends in the Hebrew Roots movement that the Bible alone, let me say that again, the Bible alone is the Word of God. The Talmud is not the Word of God. Hebrew traditions are not the Word of God. Extra-biblical writings are not the Word of God. Only it is God-breathed. Only it is our sufficient rule of faith and practice. So if a teaching agrees with the Bible, very fine. But if not, that teaching is out. Raising extra-biblical sources, sources that are not Bible, raising them to a place of prominence on par with or even higher than the Scripture is not permissible for a Christian person. Related to this is the idea of testament priority. Which testament in your Bible gets the priority in your reading and understanding and interpretation? 
which testament, Old Testament or New Testament, is more important? I'm going to really trip you up with this question. Um, One convert to the Hebrew Roots Movement wrote this, I decided that the Hebrew text was right. I decided that the Hebrew text was right. Now, if you have any discernment, I hope you can see that that is a deficient view of the Bible. Some people say, like these ones, the Old Testament has priority. Other people say, very commonly, they say this, the New Testament has priority. And in fact, the New Testament has such priority, it can remake, remanufacture, change the meaning of, add new meaning, or, or, or adapt the meaning of a text that's there that had a certain meaning, but now it has another meaning. A classic example, you know, Hosea 11, regarding Israel historically coming out of Egypt, and Matthew using that in Matthew 2.15, and and the people say, oh, look, actually Matthew sees that there's a prophecy there in Hosea 11. No, Matthew doesn't see a prophecy there. He's saying this is like that. He's not saying this is that or this is the fulfillment of that in some predictive, uh, you know, come-to-pass kind of way. So he's not redefining the Old Testament. But many, many Christians and teachers teach that the New Testament has priority over the Old. Here the Hebrew Roots Movement is saying, the old has priority over the new. I say not, neither of them have priority over the other. Instead of you know pitting the Old Testament against the New Testament, why don't we say this? We have one Bible. One Bible. What is it about the... You know that page in your Bible? That page... It's right before Matthew. Let's see if I can find it. Does this Bible even have it? Oh yeah, there it is. You see that? The New Testament page. Was that inspired? Nope. It just so happens there's 400 years between Malachi and the events of Matthew. That doesn't make Matthew more important than Malachi. That makes it very special, yes, that you know God broke his, his silence. But he's done that before. He's done that before. Remember, the Bible was lost in the temple. Hilkiah found it. Josiah. It even happened before that. 1 Samuel chapter 3. One of the saddest parts of Scripture. And the Word of God was rare in those days. And there was no frequent vision until Samuel came along and God used him to bring new revelation to the people of God. They were in a famine state because they did not have God's Word. So, just because there's a delay in time between the delivery of one part of the Bible and another part of the Bible doesn't mean that you need to treat them in some kind of you know, priority sense. The whole Bible taken together is the Word of God. Both Testaments are equally inspired such that there really are not two Testaments at all. There rather is one single Bible. And so, a method of interpreting Scripture that elevates one section over the other is immediately suspect because all Scripture is God-breathed. You can't say, well, the Old Testament is God-breathed and the New Testament is God-breathed plus. Or the Hebrew text is God-breathed plus plus. It doesn't work like that. 
The Bible is inspired. It's all from God. And it can't be pitted one against the other. Okay? So we're going to have to stop there. I have a few more elements of evaluation to bring to your attention. But we'll have to do that another time. I don't want you all to fall asleep. Uh, I hope you got a nap this afternoon so you'd be ready to pay attention tonight. <laughs> but here we are. Um, so I've enjoyed the day. I hope you have as well. Uh, it's been a busy day for me, three messages, and uh, hopefully you've enjoyed and gained some profit out of it and some likeness to Christ. Uh, part of what I'm doing here is I'm setting your feet on the sound and firm doctrinal foundation of God's Word so that you will not be blown this way or that way when you encounter something like this and say, wow, what a neat idea that we get back to the Hebrew roots of Christianity. But they're not really the accurate portrayal of the Hebrew roots anyway, what we're talking about here. And they conflict with so much New Testament teaching. So we want to be firm and stand true uh, in sound doctrine and not be swayed into error. Now, we haven't even touched some of the more serious error here. This is serious enough, but there's even worse that we need to touch. That's, again, only some of those in the Hebrew Roots movement uh, hold to this. So I want to be fair about that but and loving and kind. But uh, if I'm to do my job as a shepherd, I am commanded to uh, fortify us against false doctrine and to help those who are in it to turn away from it and bring come back to the, the way of Scripture. So that is our hope and desire for those in that movement. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've covered a part of this material tonight and we ask that you would help us to be strengthened by it. Those that are listening online, some perhaps in time to come will encounter this message on the computer and I hope that they will be benefited by it as well. However far in the future that is, Lord God, we pray your blessing upon them as they search the Scriptures to see if these things are so and protect them from swallowing the error of any system of theology but only what is in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.